Hello everyone and welcome to Nudge. I'm your host Phil Agnew and in today's show we are looking at the common mistakes made by hiring managers. Hiring decisions are arguably some of the most important decisions a manager will make in his or her career. Get them right and you'll have the foundations of a great team, but get them wrong and you'll lose momentum, waste resource and even encourage good employees to leave. Despite how important it is to effectively hire people, most of us aren't great at it. In fact, the majority of us fall foul of clear mistakes. In today's show, I'm chatting to Kate Glazebrook on what those common mistakes are. My guest Kate co-founded Applied. Applied is a recruitment platform that uses behavioural science to remove bias and common mistakes from hiring. Prior to Applied, Kate worked for the UK's Behavioural Insights team, the UN and the Australian Treasury. Kate's also on the Behaviour Science Committee for the World Economic Forum. To kick off, I asked Kate what the core problems around modern day hiring are. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com slash service to do more for your customers today. Well, great to be here and thanks for having me, Phil. I'd say the first problem is that we haven't really innovated in the last 100 years. So if you look at hiring advertisements in the 1910s and 1920s, you'll notice that they look astonishingly similar to the way that we currently write job ads, which is, hello, my name is, and I'm looking for a person that looks a bit like this. Uh, Here are some things that you will do. Uh, And usually the response to that is, oh, I'm going to match your piece of paper with another piece of paper that says, hello, my name is, my name's Kate, and here are all the things I've done in the past. Maybe I'm right for you. And actually, there's been very little innovation in the way that we hire despite the fact that we not only have organisations and teams that look completely different than they did 100 years ago, but more importantly, we also know and understand how the brain works and the ways in which that paper sharing process can go widely wrong. As you probably know, there's now been decades worth of research that we all systematically overlook people in hiring processes just because they might not look the part. Uh, And it happens unconsciously for the most part. It's the sort of 
part of the brain that many of your listeners will kind of recognize as system one or sort of Danny Kahneman's system one thinking. We make automatic assumptions about people and what they can do on very limited pieces of information. And that can sometimes lead us astray. It tends to result in unrepresented groups being less likely to be hired for jobs, even when they're equally qualified. And studies and studies and studies have shown that over the last uh, 50 years. Sadly, it looks like most of those studies show there's almost no change in the rate of discrimination against these groups. So to take the UK as an example, in the 1970s, um, when they first started studying the rate of discrimination in hiring processes, they set up an experiment where they came up with fake applicants to real jobs and they sent out these um, fake candidates to a bunch of jobs and they had ostensibly all of the same backgrounds. They'd studied the same things, they had the same work history, same kind of extracurricular activities. But what they changed is small details at the top of that application And the most common detail that they changed was the name of the applicant. And then they measured whether or not the different names got different rates of callback. Uh, And they showed that, sadly, people with non-Anglo-Saxon sounding surnames, for example, needed to send between 50 and 75% more CVs to get the same rate of callback for interview, even when they were equally qualified for the job. So exactly the same applicant, just a different name. And sadly, the most recent study equivalent study was done just about two years ago here in the UK and found that that rate of discrimination basically hasn't changed. Uh, So still underrepresented groups need to send up to twice as many applications to get the same rate of callback. In the US, when they've done equivalent studies, they've shown that the rate of discrimination there, which is comparable to what we have here in the UK, is the kind of economic equivalent of needing five extra years worth of job experience to quote unquote overcome um, the racial association of your surname. It's 50 years since those studies from back in the 1970s, and yet things still haven't changed today. We're still making those same mistakes. As Kate says, this puts some candidates in the US five years behind their peers and means that those in the UK with non-Anglo-sounding names will need to send almost double the number of CVs to catch up. But it's not just racial discrimination. Kate goes on to explain other studies that highlight how discrimination in the hiring process affects all minority groups. So that's sort of one host of studies that have been done looking at ethnic or racial associations, but they've kind of replicated that study design uh, now in about 30 to 40 countries around the world and also changed it up. So looked at differences by gender, differences by perceived sexual orientation. They've even done studies where they take pictures of of us, like Phil, you and I, um, and then used uh, digital imagery to make us a more obese version of ourselves and checked whether or not the slimmer or or larger version of us is more hireable and sadly have found that most of the time uh, the majority group is much more hireable, even where uh, everybody is equally qualified. Discrimination is prevalent in hiring for any minority group, whether it's race, sexual orientation, gender, and even physical shape. Now, it's easy to hear findings like this and think, that's awful, but it's, it's obviously not me. I wouldn't discriminate. It must be my racist colleague or my sexist boss. But that just can't be the case. Discrimination wouldn't be this widespread if only a few people were doing it. I asked Kate about people's misconceptions of themselves, and she talked through an exercise she does with hiring managers to help them spot their mistakes. 
in the work that we do, we tend to start uh, a lot of presentations with organisations by doing a small experiment with people in the room. Uh, usually it's a sort of memory trick experiment where we demonstrate just how powerful things like false recall are. So we give people a list of words that doesn't contain a particular word, but it's associated. And then we ask people, which of these words did you remember? And usually about half of the, the group will falsely remember a word we didn't give them, but a word that was sort of viably one of them or we could have given them. And the reason why we start with experiments on real people um, in the real world is that we can also use that as a leveller and say, you know, so often in this discussion about behavioural science, we accidentally fall into the trap of thinking that there are sort of uh, nirvana of the unbiased person over here and, and then a whole bunch of terrible biased people over there. I think the first thing that we have to acknowledge is that it is going to be a reality of every one of our decisions every day. And in fact, some of the studies that have been done on organisations, they've looked at correlations, for example, between how much diversity and inclusion is talked about in an organisation or a professed goal of an organisation and how biased their actual decisions are. So a version of the experiment I mentioned earlier actually tested organisations that were more or less explicit about their kind of support for diversity and inclusion. And they found that the rate of discrimination amongst organisations with a high profession around diversity and inclusion was about the same as anybody else. Uh, and the reason why that is, is it's not sufficient for any of us to just talk about what we intend. As, as you talk about a lot in your podcast, there's the gap between our intentions and our actions. And, and it's that gap is where behavioural science has a lot to tell us about the power of context. The first common mistake is that we're unaware of our own biases. We assume we're perfect, so we don't take the necessary steps to prevent bias. But as we know, there's no perfectly rational human. And if you fail to take steps to remove bias, then you'll undoubtedly be influenced by it. The Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman discovered this when recruiting for the Israeli army. For years, Daniel made hiring decisions based on his gut instinct and his intuition. But when he reviewed the performance of his hires years later, he found no correlation between a good interviewee and a good Israeli soldier. His solution was so controversial that it almost caused a mutiny. Kahneman asked interviewers to put aside personal judgments, to put aside that gut instinct, and limit interviews to a series of factual questions meant to generate a score on six separate personality traits. Every participant would get a score based on those traits, and the one with the highest score would ultimately get the job. A few months later, it became very clear that Kahneman's systematic approach to hiring was a vast improvement over gut decisions. It was so effective that the army would use this exact method for decades to come. But there's a problem here, right? Doesn't that mean we could hire people that we don't like? Surely we have to use a bit of our gut instinct to make sure we don't hire someone we don't get along with. Well, Kate spoke to Daniel Kahneman about just that. I asked her what he had to say. Naturally, in an interview, we will get along with some people better than others. We'll just sort of build better rapport. Uh, and he sort of talked about the power of behavioural design was not trying to necessarily eradicate that because it's such a powerful human instinct to say, I really like Phil. We got along so well. He was very personable or whatever the case may be. And he made the suggestion, which we try and adopt in Applied, um, which is if you're going to do an interview with people, feel free to have a category which is as 
explicitly subjective as did you like them? Did you think you would work well with them? And we know that that's likely to contain a bunch of bias, right? It's likely to be very impression-based and very kind of uh, subjective. But we allow people to score on a one to five scale, uh, all the candidates against that particular feature. But we also require every um, interviewer to score against these other skill and more objective based criteria. And again, on a one to five scale. And then you have an opportunity to include or not include that data point, that subjective data point. But at the very bare minimum, it's likely to be a very small component of the final score for that candidate. The second mistake is hiring someone on just gut instinct. Instead, you should score candidates on a one to five scale for traits that are relevant for the job. And it's okay to include a subjective trait like how much do we like them? In fact, it's probably better off to include that as one of your scoring metrics because it probably means you'll weigh up your bias and you won't let your bias overcloud the rest of your judgment. But let's go back to the start of the interview process. Could you be making mistakes right at the start when you're just simply looking through a pile of CVs? Here's Kate talking about the problem with CVs and how her company Applied provides a solution. We felt like what we needed to do was actually use behavioural design to change the choice architecture, essentially, of the hiring process. And so some of the things that we wanted to think about in that context were what are the hard facts that we know about hiring? So one of them is that most of the data suggests that if given a CV, people will make a decision about whether to bring someone into interview or not in approximately six to 10 seconds. We wanted to think about how would we change what organisations see about candidates so that they focus on the things that are really predictive of whether that candidate is going to be a great hire and they don't get distracted by things that we know show no relationship to their hiring, um, their sort of on-the-job performance. So one thing that was really easy for us to do was to anonymise all the candidate applications because knowing that your name is Phil tells me nothing about how great of a podcast presenter you are, though you obviously are, but it's not correlated with your name. So I don't need to see that if I was to assess you as a podcast presenter, Phil. So we anonymise candidate applications not only by name but also by all the other demographic characteristics of them. Uh, and we actually, instead of giving organisations candidate CVs, which we know tend to be uh, more of a reflection of the things you've done in the past uh, and actually don't correlate that well with job performance, we instead replace the CV with candidates' responses to real-world challenges that they would face in the job, which all of the data suggests is much more predictive uh, of finding someone who's going to succeed in that job. And it has a double benefit because you're more likely to find people who are outside of the mould. So to take, you know, traditional marketing and sales roles, yes, it might be fantastic to know that someone's been a, let's say, digital marketer uh, in a SaaS company before, uh, and that might be indicative that they've got the skill. But you might find actually somebody who's very, very closely involved in marketing their local community organization actually knows the techniques, the tools, and has the insight um, of somebody who's been doing that in a startup before, let's say. So... The first thing that we did is we replaced the CV with skill-based assessments, and then we had a lot of fun experimenting with different things about how we showed that to organisations. So we obviously anonymised them all, but then we didn't want to just stop there. We actually wanted to think about things like halo effects. So to what extent are we affected in the way that we assess candidates by knowing that they're really good at skill A? Um, 
And most of the data suggests that if we think they're good at skill A, we're going to assume that they're great at skills B, C, and D. Uh, so what we wanted to do is actually chunk up applications and have candidates be compared against one another on particular skill sets and randomize the order in which those candidates are reviewed uh, so that you couldn't necessarily draw a, a single line through Phil's application. Maybe we'd assess him on his recommendations for a new PPC campaign in one, in one element. And then in another element, we might actually get him to write a few subject lines um, for some marketing emails. And then another uh, sort of skill-based assessment, we might get him to write um, the headlines for a slide that he would use on sort of the next marketing strategy. So in each of those skill areas, we'd have him be assessed compared to other candidates in an anonymized way and know that the score he got in one area was not affected by the scores in others. The third mistake is around not anonymizing CVs. There is no value in seeing someone's name on a CV. It will only bias and worsen your decision. A well-known example of how this improves your hiring decisions comes from Celia Roos's study on orchestras. Rather than hosting face-to-face -face interviews, she asked conductors to do the interview blind and just listen to the musician play. Doing so resulted in a 50% increase in the number of women selected. Now, what about the order you view CVs in? Do you and your recruiter always view them in the same order? Well, if you do, you might be making another mistake. We wanted to know whether or not, <clears throat> if your application was assessed 72nd, whether it would be perceived to be better or worse than if it was assessed second. Uh, so effectively, we were looking for were there ordering effects um, in how we assess candidates. So we set up a huge experiment and we tested whether or not uh, when a candidate is viewed is correlated with the score that they get. And we found very strong evidence that sort of backs up that same Israeli study where we found that we tend to be more generous with the first few candidates that come through when we get harsher with the scores we give later on. But the second thing we found, which was really fascinating, was we found evidence um, of what's known in the literature as successive contrasting, which is basically the score you give for a candidate now is to some extent based on how they contrast to the person you just saw. Uh, and we found very strong evidence that if you uh, are reviewed just after the best candidate in the field, that your score will be systematically lower than it otherwise would be because you've just there's a new high watermark, a new high reference point in the reviewer's mind, and you just don't compare quite as well. But if you were reviewed after one of the poorer candidates in the field, you'd get a systematically higher response because, again, with reference to the person that was just seen, you seem pretty good. So we found loads of evidence for not only sort of what we might think of as bias, but also what Kahneman and others also refer to as just noise in decision-making. Uh, and the context mattered a lot. So by randomizing all of these components of candidate applications, making it really easy to do direct comparisons, and by allowing multiple reviewers to score them in different orders, so everybody was reviewed in a completely randomized order, we were able to then combine all of those responses from, from the organization and arrive at a really, really accurate, very predictive score of whether a candidate was the right person for the job. If you don't randomize the order of the CVs and the interviews that you look at and conduct, then you'll start to see biases emerge. But let's say you've anonymized CVs, you've randomized the order you view them in, and you're interviewing people based on six core traits, six core strengths, rather than gut intuition. Sounds so good so far, but how do you make 
the final decision. How do you make the decision on who you want to hire? Do you and your team come up a, with a consensus, a group decision? Or do you wait for your boss or your boss's boss to have the final say? Here's Kate explaining why you need to structure your interviews and why you shouldn't let your boss make the final call. As you might know, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that unstructured interviews may as well be chucked out. You may as well just make a decision by throwing candidate applications in the air and picking the best one because unstructured interviews are very, very um, lacking in predictivity about who the best person is uh, and also very prone to bias. But the more that you can move to a more structured interview, like the one we described before, which is what are the skills and attributes that this person needs, ideally testing the actual tasks that they would need to do in the job in a job-relevant way, so using sort of work samples and scoring those rigorously on different components of those skill sets using multiple people who don't share their opinion before submitting their scores. Uh, And that latter part's really important because, as many of your listeners know, there's a lot of evidence around social hierarchy biases. So people are often unwilling to disagree with their boss on their opinion. Uh, Or it might be the case that somebody is considered to be a particular authority on something so others are uh, fall back and, and feel less confident to be able to offer their opinion. And often what happens in hiring processes, you have this dreaded washed-up session where a bunch of people get in the room and they sort of who's willing to fight for this candidate and who's willing to state their claim against them coming in. And actually all of the evidence suggests that's a waste of everyone's time. You should independently score, submit them, and then just average out the scores um, because what we found in our evidence is that no one person is particularly excellent at predicting the best hire. And in fact, the more that you have diverse opinions on candidates in the process, the more likely it is you're going to arrive at a great outcome. The fifth mistake is leaving the final recruitment decision to one person. Now, for the vast majority of us, this seems to happen. There's someone who swoops in at the end of an interview process to make the final call. There's simply no evidence that suggests this will lead to a better choice. Instead, delegating the decision and letting the group decide often leads to much better results. The final mistake Kate talks through is around job descriptions that you put together for your for your job ads. She explains how a badly written job description can dramatically reduce the number of high quality candidates who apply. More recently, in about the last 10 years, there have been studies done on how you could take ostensibly the same job and change some of the language that you use in that job description and how that will affect the likelihood that different types of people apply to it. What they've been able to show is that there is this concept of what we might think of as gendered language. So you could take the same concept but use a version of the word that's more associated with masculine traits and a version of the word that's more associated with feminine traits. What we typically associate with men are what they call agentic words. Uh, So things like individual power, action, momentum focused, and things that kind of go to an individual agency. Whereas feminine coded words tend to be more like caring, collaboration, support. So the sort of roles that we've typically seen women play in society historically. And what's important to note here is both women and men associate those words with women and men, which is to say that women 
see a gentic language as being masculine as much as men do. So I guess the research then looked at this and then said, well, why don't we take the same job and use slightly more agentic language to describe it versus slightly more communal? So you might think of a sort of mid-level sales manager could be a good example of this. You could write that job description in a way that emphasizes the fact that there'll be tough targets, you'll be held to account, um, that you're going to be having to work to drive great results from your sales team. You could also take that mid-level sales manager role and instead emphasize the parts of the role, the other part of it, which is that you're going to support your team to perform at their best. You're going to look for opportunities to build their expertise and, and develop them in their roles. And you're going to look for ways of communicating the success or challenges of your team to senior managers. And the former, as you might imagine, is a sort of slightly more masculine version of that sales manager role and the latter is a more feminine. So in 2011, some researchers in the US um, did a version of this. They took hundreds of types of jobs. They coded them more masculine or more feminine, but they were ostensibly the same job. And then they measured the rate at which people applied to it. And they found the thing which is slightly intuitive, I guess, which is that more women applied to jobs where they were more feminine coded uh, and less to the more masculine coded versions of them. And more men applied to the more masculine coded versions and less to the feminine. Though interestingly, men on the whole seemed less affected by the, the words themselves. Um, so it seemed to be a disproportionate impact on women. The sixth and final problem is using language in your job descriptions that only appeal to a certain group. Instead, try to decode your job descriptions and use language that doesn't exclude individuals and you'll increase your pool of great candidates. Now, it might sound like a, a lot of effort to change all these parts of your hiring process and it may leave you wondering if it's really worth it. Well, there's research to back this approach up. In 2015, a McKinsey study examined data for 366 public companies across a range of industries in Canada, Latin America, the UK and the US. It found that companies in the top quartile for racial and ethnic diversity were 35% more likely to have financial returns above their respective national industry medians. And companies in the top quartile for gender diversity, well, they're 15% more likely to have higher financial returns above their national medians. Diversity pays. Remove these mistakes from your hiring process and you'll start building teams that outperform the competition. That's all from me today. Before we go, I want to say a huge, huge thank you to Kate for coming on the show. I found her points and insights fascinating and hopefully you did too. If you're listening in and wondering how your company can avoid these mistakes, then it might be worth checking out Applied, the company that Kate co-founded. Their technology helps clients avoid these pitfalls and build better teams. I've left a link to their website in the show notes. Before you go, please also take the time to sign up to our mailing list so I can send you an email when the next episode goes live. And if you're feeling particularly generous, please do leave a review of the show on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Anyway, that is all for me this week. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Nudge. <laughs>